Free Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is our co-host, uh, Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome, Jessica. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. And our featured guest is Dr. Lisa Levy. She's a uh, visual and conceptual artist and a performing artist. She's a self-proclaimed psychotherapist. And uh, she runs the show Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, welcome, Lisa. Hi, how you doing? Thanks Good. for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we were talking a little bit right before the show started about performance art and uh, the various uh, permutations of that and what the meaning of it is for the audience and, and what kind of ways in which it can uh, uh, maybe startle people or waken people. So or is that your intention or what is the what, is, what do you think is the intention behind performance art and and what is your your intention uh, behind performance art? Yeah. Well, I think that's a a wide-ranging answer. I think it's really different for everyone, and, and I think it means something different to everyone. Um, I And I think it's really hard to categorize performance art. I've been categorized in it, and I ha- I've... It's funny, I think sometimes I get categorized, but I think serious performance artists don't think of me as performance art. <laughs> I call performance art like comedy without the without the humor. But um, I, all of my work, I think, kind of um, comes down to me wanting to have a really meaningful connection with other people. And I think however that happens, kidding, shock, sometimes shocking or, you know, alerting uh, and making myself vulnerable, however I do it, that's what I'm looking for in all of my work. So it was interesting when you said comedy without the humor, because uh we did a show, Truth and Comedy, about how, um, you know, uh, comedy can be, like, startling or can be revealing. And then uh, without the humor, so separating out, like, uh, the humor being, like, you don't want the intention is not to make people laugh or, like, or laugh in the sense of, or maybe maybe they will laugh, but not in the sense of, like, lighthearted laughter or, like, oh, that's, that's cute. It's, it's more, do you find it, like, can you explain a little bit more about it? Well, I find... Um I'm I I'm no expert on performance art. Um I just my experience with it is that it doesn't have a real entertainment value and a lot of it seems to me this is horrible. I'm going to this seems kind of self-indulgent and um I think that all art should especially perfor- anything to do with performance in front of a live audience should have some entertainment or connection. And I find that a lot of performance art just seems very self-contained. And, you know, unless, like, if you have, like, a kinetic, somebody just, like, being, somebody literally being, like, a kinetic sculpture where you're not supposed to stand in the room and just stare at them, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I think I I have that criticism of some poetry as well that's very self-indulgent and it's not allowing or it's not permitting the reader to have access to the mythologies or the uh, the uh, interpreting it's some of the poetry that I read uh, in contemporary contemporary poetry, um, you know, it's so self indulgent, it's so cryptic that you don't even get it. You know, you're reading, mm-hmm. you're like it's just words in the page. You know, you're not able to yeah. unlock it. You know, I, I think one of the keys is looking at because I work with a lot of writers and I think there you can tell the difference between the people who are like, I really do want to communicate to someone and there's something important I want to communicate versus people who will write things or perform things. And I'll ask them and I'll be like, what, what's, what do you want to communicate? And they're just like, 
they're just trying to get out of themselves what they are experiencing. It's not yet reached a point where there's a thought and a desire to take care of, you know, the the audience. Themselves. You know, I'm actually OK. And I get get what you mean. There's a lot of there's a lot of visual artists like that. And I'm OK with that. Mm. The point where it really grates on me is when you, you the viewer are demanded something is demanded of you like if i you know you can turn the page on a piece of indulgent poetry you don't have to look at a painting but when you expect to have somebody physically present in front of your art you better fucking give them something that's my yeah. that's my you know point what? of view i feel the same way about teaching cuz i feel like you know when i'm when if you're going to take people's money and then lock them in a room and teach like, I do think that teaching is an art form. Um, you know, I've, I've just seen a lot of yeah. teachers where I'm like, it's more about them teaching than about the students right. learning. And that yeah. really, really pisses me off. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's true because it's like, yeah, if you're just if you just have a YouTube channel up, it's like, cool. People can just not watch your YouTube channel. But if you're taking people's money and if you're closing the door behind them, you know, you're it's kind of your job to take care of them. Yeah. And you should put some thought into you know what that journey is going to be for them and and you should surrender the experience to be for them rather than for yourself at least yeah especially with te- particularly with teaching that's because you're really there for them yeah I, wonder, I think i wonder about this demanding of the listener or the viewer the or the participant uh so now um we would expand a little bit more on that and like we could talk a little bit about that because like sometimes we think like uh you know it's the easiest thing like the most baseline entertainment doesn't require anything, but then isn't it a richer experience come from when the listener is more disciplined or readers more disciplined and they're able to access, but there's gotta be a middle ground between like, you know, a certain amount of demands and, and, and certain amount of, you know, the, the reader has to be a little bit more disciplined to like participate in the. Well, I think that comes down to the, um, the participants taste because like, mm-hmm. for example, I don't really like opera, but I think if you really are brought up with opera or put a lot into opera, you can fucking like, you know, zoom right into that shit. And I've seen it. Yeah. So I think it's, it really just depends. I mean, you know, I don't think, I don't think having a broad audience is important. I think Mm. if you have one person, like if you do a show for 30 days and you have one person every day, that's like fucking like you're killing it for them. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, no, I agree that I think that when you try to please everyone, you satisfy no one and that it's okay that art uh, might have smaller audiences. I think as long as there's a variety and I think about it like books, you know, like if every book was Moby Dick level of writing, like no one would learn how to read because we wouldn't have duck, duck, goose and green eggs and ham. And I think sometimes different forms of art or poetry get you know, looked down upon because, and I'm like, but it's such a great entryway into an Mm -hmm. art form, you know, like, uh, you know, I just think that, you know, if everything's high concept, then it's like only the things that you were brought up with are, Mm -hmm. are the things that you're going to be into versus looking at like, you know, I'm always interested if one is with art forms that I'm not super familiar with, like performance art. I, my first question would be like, where's a good entry point for someone who's interested but has no experience with this mm. art form. Yeah. And like, what's the gateway drug? Like, I'm always mm-hmm. looking for the gateway yeah. drug when it comes to, you know, because like also with like fine arts and museums, you know, I grew up, 
you know, on a lake bear hunting with a bow and arrow. So that you know, sounds cool. I, it, yeah. That sounds like an art. It's yeah. well, we would use all the animal. My mom would make yeah. jewelry out right. of the antlers yeah. and the hooves. And, you know, we were a very creative family. But when I first came to New York, you know, when I went to like the Guggenheim, I was just like, you know, I just I just felt like I mean, I, I knew Picasso's work because I got a little obsessed with Picasso and Dolly in high school. But aside from that, I just it, there was this feeling of not for you. And it took me until I traveled through Europe and especially Austria because their curation at museums is, is, is excellent. Yeah. And, yeah. And very inviting to, you know, no matter what level mm-hmm. of understanding of art you have. And that's something I feel like I've struggled with a little bit with, you know, uh, performance art in New York City is I'm yeah. just like, whoa, I just don't even know the the entry. Yeah. Point to yeah. A lot of a lot of artists like that. It's it has an elitist feeling. There's a lot of money around art. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, I'm all about, you know, I make a lot of things that are sold in mul- multiples, like where you can buy them really cheap. Yeah. And stuff like that. Um but I was also going to say, I think that um, a lot of what happens in in cr- the creative process with the creator, I think a big, um, for me, a big dividing line is how much ego is in the work yeah. but of the creator. Because I think if the more you can get away from what, what you, what your super ego, excuse me for sounding like a shrink, <laughs> what your super ego is hoping to get out of it, the better the work. And I think that's really hard for all of us to transcend, but you can see it and when it happens, and that's where I think the best work comes from. Not necessarily where the most successful artists come from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, I went to a performance art exhibit or personal performance uh, um and uh, one of the one of the people was like banging his nails into roses, Ugh, rose sorry. petals. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Uh, mostly, it, it, the concept wasn't that highbrow, or the concept wasn't that thing. But it's, it's just standing there and just listening to the banging and such, and, and banging each nail in is the process of the experience, the how it unfolded. But then, of course, you know, we're in this like Lower East Side, you know, basement place, and of course, you know, it's disrupted the tenants' peace, uh. you know. So the tents came down and we're like, you got to stop, you know, like, yeah, you got to stop this huge bang. It was just this rhythmic bang. And, uh, you know, so from one perspective, it was uh, from my perspective, it was interesting because it was like, you know, it was like, you know, as a as a listener, I was like, oh, you know, I was able to make connections or I was able to facilitate something there. Just listening to the because uh, it had some rhythmic banging to it and then the rose petals and such. But from another perspective, point of view, it was just a banging, you know. OK, well, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to attribute that to your deep Buddhist yeah. training, and that's it. Yeah. I wouldn't have gotten yeah. that. Yeah. doesn't sound that yeah. great. Yeah. I, I, I think riffing off of what you're saying, like the, because yeah. I, I agree that the ego gets in the way of good art because you know to me, good art requires vulnerability. And yeah. if you are speaking from ego or moving from ego or creating from ego, you know, ego completely blocks vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. Because the ego only exists because it's trying, you know, trying to have that permanent state. That is the bandaid over the thing you're most vulnerable of. Mm-hmm. You know? So we're using the term mm-hmm. ego and super ego. Uh, I know Freud has Immort- his own Immort- oh, I'm sorry. There's a word for that. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Immortality. Um, uh, uh, and a, a monument. Immortality. A monument to your immortality. Uh, ego. Yeah. yeah. But go ahead. I'm so sorry. We're using all these terms now. Ego and super ego. I know Freud had his own definitions for them. But Lisa, you were using the term super ego. Did you mean something different than ego or... 
Well, uh, super ego is kind of like the judging of the judging like, one. you know, like where you're like really looking at yourself and, and, and thinking about, you know, it's a very, con- it's like a very self-conscious, it's self-consciousness kind of. Oh, uh, yeah. Because yeah. that usually uh, has society tells you you should be looking at yourself or would you say society well, is involved? I think, or, yeah. I think, I mean, I think like having a super ego is important because if you didn't, you might walk into a business meeting and go like, Hey, anybody want cigarettes? Yeah. Like acting appropriately. <laughs> How you know? Yeah. Acting according to sociological norms. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, or like, or, them, yeah. yeah, if I don't, you know, I should hold the seat, you know, super ego yeah. is important because yeah. it's your behavior, but you know, ego is, is, is a little less, I think, conscious. It's more like you, your sense of self, but yeah. um, with, you know, without any kind of self-reflection. And then we have the id, which is really the desire to like, you know, do all this stuff, that indulgent stuff. And then that seems to be wrestling with super ego. And then the regular ego is like, the middle middle manager, you know, matching the two. Yeah, the yeah. part of me right yeah. now is rejecting this Freudian conversation. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. Need, I'm no expert, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't. You, there are a lot of people who could say a lot more smarter things about <laughs> Freud and psychotherapy than myself. Yeah. So you put down uh, yourself becoming psychotherapist. What does that mean to you, or what is that? How does that? Um, to you? Well, actually, um, in 2001, I, uh, you know, I was doing visual concept you know, art ideas and stuff like that, art with ideas. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. But uh, so what I did was I had this idea that it would be great to do psychotherapy as kind of like theater. Yeah. And um, so I came up with this show and I'd never performed before and I have no formal training in therapy either. And so I had this idea to... Oh. Uh... (laughs) Somebody's phone. Oh, sorry. So I had this idea that it would be really interesting to invite audience. I had like a whole shrink set. I'm going to be doing this, by the way, folks, October 18th at the Bad Theater Festival. I haven't done this in years. and I'm going to be doing it then. Uh-huh. Um, so what I did, what I will be doing is um, setting up like the shrink couch, the whole set, and then inviting audience volunteers to do therapy with me. So I would define uh-huh. their problems and then sort of talk about it and then get the audience involved. And so it was like, it wound up being like this really group discussion, which could actually be very cathartic for the person on the couch. And we did it in 13 minute sessions. Yeah. I participated a little bit in this, like this kind of a thing in small groups where, you know, the person, they have also family um, constellations where we kind of act a psychodrama out there. Yeah. Psychodrama, yeah, psychodrama out. Yeah. Psychodrama out there. They're, major issue or problem so they have like a problem with their mother and then you know the the person in the audience like plays their mother and someone else plays someone else and then they uh arrange them in the room and then uh as like a constellation like planetary constellation and is there a complicated people can look this up family constellations but um and then they kind of like in this theater form they're like looking at how does that how did the placement how does it make them feel how does it connect with them how does it I'm very far away from the other person, from the person representing you, or I'm turning my back on mm-hmm. you. I'd like to turn around. Yeah. These kinds of things in the physical space we're arranging is a very interesting uh, concept. And uh, yeah, dynamic. that's been yeah. around. Yeah. Um, actually, um, I have big influence. My mother, my best friend from high school, her mother did that. Mm. And um, 
So, I mean, what that does is it's kind of like, I guess, triggering is yeah. what you'd say is like setting up a situation where you can imagine that scene replaying and then getting in touch with how you felt from that. I mean, which is, I think, a really valuable form of therapy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like what I do is sort of like has a scent has more humor to it uh. or whatever. And it's it's not meant to be, you know. It can be serious, but it's not, you know, it's not real therapy. Yeah, so I, I think ripping the, off the psychodrama yeah. is like psychocomedy, you know, like, yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. Because, well, I, I mean, you know, art therapy is a, it's an interesting field. And I have some some friends who are art therapists. And I think the key difference, because like, you know, what I do, I feel like the type of work I do with the meditative writing is like, I would say for a lot of people, it's very therapeutic, but it's not therapy. It, yeah. is, it is, is it, a, it is an art class. Uh, you know? and so yeah. I think you can, you know, there might be something that yes, is therapeutic about it, but you're not claiming it's actual therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, no, because the whole thing is in the beginning, I, the way I set it up, I'm making fun of the fact that I have, I have like this Photoshop diploma that I show everybody. And I said, this <laughs> This used to say Bachelor of Fine Arts, and now it says Masters of Clinical Psychology. So yeah. I'm not the authority, which actually, in a certain way, gives me some authority. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you like, do you find yourself uh, challenging the authority, or at least in the heart, you know, kind of feeling like questioning authority? Or in what way do you relate with authority in, in your own life? Oh, well, that's a really, that's an insightful question, because authority yeah. is a huge, huge issue for me. I was really afraid of my parents. I'm really afraid of people in authority. It's mm. really hurt me. You know, I was an art director in advertising for almost 30 years and it really, really hurt me then because I was afraid of all my bosses mm. and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm, I try to, I'm not curing it or solving it. I'm trying to make peace with it and doing things like the radio show, my own radio show and doing my mm. own projects. Um, I'm much ha- happier. Or healthier, mm, yeah. but I don't have a good relationship with authority. I don't think I'm ever going to. You know, in healing your own relationship with authority, I guess we're, we're demonstrating or modeling a way in which we can all kind of relate with or, you know, or demonstrating or modeling how your audiences can question authority or inspiring them, perhaps to question authority, mm-hmm. question their relationship with authority so that then they can then go forth and yeah. yeah, think about, think, yeah. right, make up their own mind. That's yeah. a really good point because... Yeah. Part of the reason I was inspired to do the show is because um, I've had so many shitty shrinks. Mm. I've had some great shrinks, yeah. too. And there is no, like, Yelp for shrinks. And <laughs> so I don't, like, there's a lot of shrinks that are horrible. Yeah. And you can't, you got to question your own shrink. Yeah. 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 Um, my, my, my sister and my best friend are both uh, shrinks. shrinks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on this one psychodynamic, one CBT. And. Yeah. It's it is something where and I've also had the majority of, of therapists I've gone to, I very much bumped <sighs> heads with and it just felt like I'm paying, you know, four hundred dollars for someone to be ignorant and rude to me. Um and it is <laughs> something I do encourage people that there are some good ones out there and yeah, you kinda have to date around and it's very annoying. But if you are in a place where, you know, you do need help that, you know, you do, you know. Go go speak to someone. I do want to encourage people on that, even though. Yeah, I, know, I had the experience a where a friend one. of mine referred me to a psychotherapist, and uh, he had such an amazing experience with her. He, you know, he's singing her praises and such. And I went to her, and I found, you know, my experience was that negative because, uh, you know, she was like very like 
she was what he called tough love, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that tough love didn't work for me because it was like almost yeah. like pushing me in a way that I felt was inappropriate or or demanding well, me to do really things. It really depends you know? on your relationship, yeah, your relationship with authority yeah. and stuff. And so that's and I think that that's, you know, it's OK. Like they're not everyone's. You know, there there's an art form for the th- to the therapy and the energy you bring yeah, to the room. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. it also depends on like the type of clients that they've had. You know, so yeah. if if they're used to dealing with you know people from Rikers Island, and then they're going, and then they're transitioning into d- working with mm. you know um, a more conventional uh, right. Brooklyn audience. Yeah, you know that that has an effect on it. And so yeah. I think I just wish that there was like a more cost effective way yes. to be able to I try about out therapists because yeah. the thing that stopped me for there's been so many years where I was severely depressed and really did need to be mm. in a structured therapy yeah. but I was also you know struggling with money and I was just like I cannot I give yeah. that I much know. if yeah. I have to go meet 10 people to find one that works I, I mean that's $3,000 right yeah, there but that, I, the insurance they have that but then the people in insurance company the insurance health, really? health, oh yeah so the uh, insurance people sometimes are not as effective, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, as opposed to the well, general. Yeah. yeah. And most people, I mean, I don't know, in my experience, all of the health insurance that I've ever had, there's only been one time where my health insurance covered mm. uh, 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 psychology, like therapy. Yeah. Um, all the other uh, um, insurance that I've had just was general medical coverage. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of people I know who don't have health insurance yeah, at all. So <laughs> I've gotten to some psychotherapists and like over the time, you know, also I found this thing, uh, core energetics, which is mm-hmm. like uses the body and, you know, try to yeah. engage um, movement and, mm-hmm. you know, engage the kind of core, you know, the, the whole uh, tradition there, a whole tradition based on some psychotherapist, psychotherapy, uh, yeah. Theories and such that allow you to kinetically engage the body. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, when yeah. I was going through that hard, uh, de- that really hard depression, that's where I wandered into a yoga class. Yeah, and that's when I got, and then I did a yoga class every single morning for 365 days in a row, and then I got did my yoga teacher training, and that was my therapy for a very long time. And I think that for a lot of people, you know, just moving your body, like if you just just eating healthy, getting regular exercise for me does like 40% of the therapy that I need. Yeah. And that's some of the hardest things because there are going to be, when you do suffer from depression, sometimes just getting out of bed feels impossible. But when I do, you know, in the, in the past, I was like, oh, okay, like, you know, I just need to actually get out of bed go exercise, even though I'm not totally feeling it. Yeah. Um, and, and that puts me in a much... If you if you need a little self therapy, everyone just go to a yoga class. Yeah, we're discussing about <laughs> mind and body and how engaging the body. I, I think that's yeah, so important body, yeah. too because you know, like the thing is, um, I have a problem with depression. I'm on antidepressants. I've been in a study at a hospital on depression. My father had uh, shock therapy a bunch of different times. It's definitely partly biological, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um and uh. I have been walking into Manhattan from Bushwick at three to four times a week. And that has totally chilled my head out. Yeah. Like I am like so much happier and I feel so much sharper. I think yeah. I'm, I mean, you don't have to be an athlete, but I think, you know, if you're in really bad shape and you have bad eating habits, you know, you're going to be, you know, 
unhappy. Yeah. yeah. So much. It, it's it, it's so much of the the chemistry in our brains is really affected by you know what we put into our body and how we use our body. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of people think that oh you know oh I can just pop a pill and you know psychiatry is something that I'm very weary of. I've had very bad experience with the medications I've been put on and yeah. And when I you know when I had really bad reactions to my, that was another place where I, that's why I found meditation actually. And that's how I got into meditating was the, I lost my insurance. I couldn't afford the meds I was on. And plus the ones they were giving me for anxiety were actually causing me to have really bad panic attacks and a few little breaks. Mm. And so I was just like, I got to figure out how to manage my mind. And so that's when I started getting into more official uh, meditative practices. And it was really amazing that with the meditation and uh being more physically active it's it really was like i was just like this for some people not for everyone there's definitely people i know who I'm like they need to be on certain medications yeah. because their chemistry right. is is more is large it's, no it's, serotonin yeah. yeah but but for me like for me it's like i've been able to manage you know my brain differences my anxiety yeah. depression bipolar through exercise and meditation yeah yeah i definitely think there's an intimate connection between body and mind and and to some extent you know it's definitely necessary to be on medication but there's there's a uh there's a limit to what it can do absolutely uh, acknowledging that limit acknowledge the limit and being able to engage your mind engage the practices and at the point where you're able to um maintain your focus and concentration you're able to improve that improve your health Mm -hmm. improve your vitality that that life energy so that then you have more passion connecting with your passions that then You'll be able to engage in activities uh, in a way which is fruitful for you, and you know, and and really uh, engaging for you, so that you're able to to be a, like you know, one of the episodes, uh, one of the recent episodes, we're talking about how being a teacher with heart, being whatever it is, your ex with the heart, whatever it is you're doing with heart, and connecting to the heart center will then, I think, cascade into healing all these like yeah. biological things. You know, yeah, it's like um, the best way for me to get out of depression is to make art that I like on some level. I mean that yeah. that. But I also I'm going to push back on the meditating because I'm I know you guys are major meditators. Yeah. But I think meditating is kind of a waste to me. It, I'm just talking about me. Yeah. It seems mm-hmm. dumb, a waste of time. Uh, you're sitting there. You're not doing anything. Like, why aren't you out moving? Well, that I mean, seems- it depends on there's lots of different. I would just clarify that uh, the traditional viewpoint of meditation is that just breathing meditation which is like one yeah. aspect, one part it's preliminary. A very tiny it's a very part, preliminary, like, uh, yeah. very preliminary exercise to focus on the breath, and it's very basic. Uh, I would, I would build on that. That is just an entry point. It's like a gateway drug, if you will, a great gateway medication, med- meditation. But uh, when you go further down the path, there's ways in which you can move. You can do walking meditations where you're just focusing on each step. But then deeper than that, when you go further down. You're engaging activities with a guided, like a a, a missile uh, that has a guided, um, you know, a goal, an intention. Mm-hmm. To, and the intention is to, you know, clear your obstacles, clear the obstructions, mental obstructions. So then you can engage in life in a way that every moment becomes like engaging with that uh, focus or object or meditative uh, proposition. How can I be more kind? How can I be more loving? And looking for opportunities to engage your yeah. heart center I think you know the, would you the agree thing with i think the thing with meditation i mean because like i used to think people would say meditation and i was like yeah hippie crap yeah. like i'm not getting involved with you know i was this yeah. rough t- i was just like that's ridiculous 
And I didn't even realize that the way I was writing poetry from the age of 12, I was meditating. Yeah. It's just that if, you know, a lot of people think of like Zazen meditation where it's like you yeah, sit sitting there and yeah. all you do is breathe and you count the breaths and any, yeah. and that's focused meditation. That's one thing, Where you're yeah. supposed to, um, where you're supposed to ignore everything and just focus on one thing versus like open meditation, like TM, where you invite uh. everything in and you're simply becoming aware of what am I feeling? What am I thinking? And then there's like guided visual meditation, like what, yeah. which is I do for my artists. But then, yeah, there's walking meditation, there's eating meditation. And really what meditation is on a, on a very broad spectrum is really just paying attention and being mm -hmm. present. So my yeah. instinct is that like when you're walking, you are doing a walking meditation. When I, you're creating art, you are. Yeah. And if you are like breath focus meditation is not my thing, then that's yeah. totally okay. Yeah. You know, but I think that that's something where uh, I, I think people immediately think of like monks and just sitting doing nothing. Yeah, yeah but it's mostly engaging like, yeah. the imagination, engaging your imagination, yeah. your core imagination. So that then, uh, and, and having that divine imagination or the pure imagination, so then we can transform uh, each, um, you know, each, uh, what we consider adverse conditions into the path, you know, so we can discipline ourselves so that then mm -hmm. this becomes not an obstacle, not an inconvenience or a frustration. Does it provoke in me frustration? Does it provoke in me anxiety? Right. But rather it's an opportunity to train the mind right. to be able so to about every do these 32 things. Sec yeah. Every 32 seconds, the brain sort of um, uh, readjusts the narrative that it's telling itself uh, about the current conditions. And I think one of the main focuses of a lot of meditations are simply choosing what that story is rather than allowing the storyteller in our head to work unconsciously. Uh, it's like our breath. We can choose to control our breath, but if we don't control it, it happens automatically. And that little story that's going on in our mind that, that changes every 32 seconds, we can choose not to control it. And then it goes on this automatic loop that is based upon our unconscious beliefs mm -hmm. and the life that we've lived up until now. Or you can, you can pay attention to it and you can tell yourself a different story and, yeah. and that's how you could actually rewire certain instincts and beliefs in the brain. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. But I also think you can do it in a lot of other other ways. See to yeah. me, meditation winds up in the same area, kind of like performance art. Like uh, I mean, just for me, I'm just being like yeah, and I'm no, ignorant yeah. about it. But um like to me, I I feel like it's more about like, I do think my walking is a certain kind of meditation because yeah. it gets me away. I don't use the phone. I, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I have a lot of ideas that way. I read, I mean, audiobooks, stuff like that. But the thing is, is that I think that the idea of focusing on being alive, just simply being in the world, uh. to me, in the way that you personally, however you do it, like meditation seems like to me a self-conscious way of doing that. Like I yeah. naturally fell into walking. Somebody uh, else might fall into knitting. Yeah, but I would say that the key here is, um, you know, mixing your mind with virtue or mixing your mind with things that will, uh, and that um, on that basis, you're manifesting the things you want in life. So, you know, a lot of times we feel frustrated that we're not getting what we want. We're not getting uh, externally uh, you know, what we're craving. So in one way, meditation is a technique of law of attraction where we're able to uh, mix our mind with virtuous uh, intention so then we can do good the good work in the world, so then we can manifest the good work in the world 
And some people use these techniques, of course, to do, to do bad, bad things in the world or what we perceive as bad things yeah. in the world. And that's just the truth. That's just a reality. I mean, that's reality. Yeah. In Hindu traditions, you know, uh, Ravana or like these evil people mm-hmm. use tapas or meditative states. And then they were the world cracked open for them. And what do you want? Well, I want power. I want, you know, and they got it because they, they were able to, 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 you know, use these techniques to do that. But then always there's a, there's a Rama in this world. There's a virtuous person yeah. in this world who uses techniques to create, you know, positive vibrations. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is that, you know, people are able to use these techniques of, uh, controlling their, uh, you know, mind or, or in some way controlling their perceptions. And they manifest, you know, mm-hmm. negative consequences. Yeah. But we need to choose that. Oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. choose to yeah. be virtuous. And- I think the key with it is really just taking responsibility for the fact that you actually that humans have the ability to mm. uh, choose what we focus on and what you yeah. focus on. Because like the conscious mind can only take in about four elements at a time. So yeah. it's like we're not actually seeing what we're seeing in this room. This is a cached image and we're yeah. paying attention to what each other is saying. And so understanding that your conscious brain can only take in a few things at a time. This is where that phrase seek mm-hmm. and you shall find. Yeah. If you suddenly decide to pay attention to, you know, red cars, you'll see a million red cars. If you're yeah. not choosing to pay attention to them, you won't notice them. Yeah. And so just understanding that, I think that's what, you know, you mean by law of attraction of if you mm-hmm. look around for you know, weak people to manipulate, you will find them. And if you look around for bullies to blame, you will find them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a choice. And a lot mm-hmm. of people, they just do it automatically and they don't realize. And for me, meditation was what taught me that, oh, this is a choice and I don't have to just yeah. be this zombie. You know, I really thought my personality was my personality and there was no changing mm. that. And when I started to realize, I was like, oh, no, 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 I can absolutely control the yeah. story I tell myself about the things that are happening in my life moment to moment. So and it immediately say, yeah. changed me from being a very, someone who was a victim and complained all the time to being someone who, you know, I was like every, everything that happens to me is an mm-hmm. opportunity for growth, development and creation. Somebody asked me the question, uh, I was doing a study at Columbia and they asked me the question, who controls your thoughts? And I think that, you know, it was just a question to evaluate, you know, where I was at. And I mean, technically I didn't answer this way, but I technically, Thoughts arise, you know, in reaction to mm-hmm. our environment, you know, thoughts arise. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we choose to uh, focus on, where we choose to place our attention and our deep in our focus, what we chose to cling on to becomes, you know, our narrative. And then we, what we, we choose to rest in awareness rather than uh, focusing our attention on these, you know, as, as Jessica was saying about connecting the dots into this narrative, this negative narrative. We can choose to connect the dots into a positive narrative, into a powerful narrative. And, uh, you know, we then create our story of our lives, you know? Mm-hmm. So what do you think about that? Um, so, you know, am I, I selling you the meditative path? I'm just like <laughs> no meditative. No. Not no. just like meditation, but the meditative path. Well, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, uh, hocus pocus around, around, you know, all this. Um, I'm, I'm very, my best friend is very much into, um, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Metaphysics and stuff yeah. like that. But I, and we, she knows how I feel. I mean, I'm very cynical about this stuff. I think a lot of people want success mm. and success in some way, some way that they imagine. And yeah. they don't really even know what success really means or when they will feel successful. Because, like, if you have a black hole, you're never going to feel successful. Mm. So no matter what. And there's a lot of people like that. 
But um, so the idea, like, I think there's just a lot around, like, if you do this, you're going to get good karma. If you do this, this is going to happen. And I just think, like, if you want to get shit done, identify what what matters to you and put energy, put your own, just do it. You yeah. Know? yeah, there's a lot of confusion around, you know, the terminologies have lost their meaning in a sense and they're reappropriated in ways in mm-hmm. which uh, kind of loses their connection. So that then new vocabulary has to be used to, in order to connect with those centers like yoga or, or karma. These are terms that are, come from Hindu and Buddhist traditions and then they kind of lose their connection to what their their intentionality means and, and how we reinvent them in a way in which yoga becomes like, you know, twisting your body in certain ways. but. You know, ultimately, I think yoga, the intention behind yoga, in my understanding of my tradition or the tradition I've been growing up in is that yoga has to do with, um, you know, connecting with source and, 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 uh, whatever you're doing, constantly keeping that focus on source so that then you can be doing anything and it becomes, uh, uh, you know, a, a complicated task because you're maintaining your mental imaginative connection with that source or that attention and doing the activity and transforming the activity into part of the path. And then also with karma, it's like you have all these imprints that's a reactive mind. Mm-hmm. You have all these imprints that memories resurface or or uh, uh, images resurface and you're reliving past and you're kind of uh, caught in that cycle of, of reaction and getting to the point where you're proactive, or you're like anticipating, or you're like, just like in a chess game, you're keeping your focus on the goals that you want rather than the individual moves with your focus. Yeah, I goals. think, I yeah. think what you're saying, what I've learned about studying karma, not what like the general American yeah, population whatever, is, yeah. and what you're saying is exactly the yeah, same I'm a consumer. Thing, yeah. Which is, which is just, you know, karma is whatever action you take, you know, it's going to bounce back. So yeah, yeah. if you want to, if you want to be an actor, go to 50, go to 50 auditions, yeah. something's going to bounce back. Yeah. Don't just sit back and wait for people right. to like find you. Mm. And I think that, you know, I, yeah, I mean, because I totally agree. But there's so many people I meet where they're I'm, they're just like, I want this different life, and then I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, if you're not doing anything different, then of course. Well, I also yeah. think I think a lot of and I'm uh, you know meta quote unquote metaphysical stuff um, excuses people from taking responsibility mm-hmm. for making mm-hmm. their own yeah. lives happen. Yeah. Well, I but, think a lot of people also use uh, psychological labels for that, too. I know a lot. Of, um, I have a friend who they're like, well, you know, I'm bipolar. So uh, and I'm yeah. like, no, 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 I'm bipolar. I was like, you're I was like, what you did is not because you're bipolar. You did that because you're a bitch and <laughs> you're just relying on this. You know, it's not an excuse, you know, to just because you have a brain difference that might even require you to be on medication. Like you still have control yeah. Over, yeah. you know, you can you can decide to think one way or another way. You can tell yourself the story yeah. about, you know, yourself however you want. And you are in control of that. I would just say that about metaphysics and supernatural, it's like we don't really even understand the laws of nature. We don't really understand the laws of no. mind. Mm-hmm. So that then, uh, you know, what we what we think is possible is really limited to what we understand is possible, you know? So like what like we have to choose that I myself will take on the burden of my own life and, and take on the burden of, you know, and with the intentionality of changing my life and start from there. So like I had the experience where, uh, you know, I think, I think this is generally known for in the public. People know this, uh, this law, this experience, but I didn't really come to full realization until it mm-hmm. happened. And the experience was that someone in the library, I was coming out of the library and uh, some woman was dumping a bunch of bread or like food or something. That looked mm-hmm. like, not, not like white bread, but like mm-hmm. some other kind of bread. Uh, some kind of food on the on the library um, 
uh, area, you know, mm-hmm. it's like out next to a tree. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, it's like you're just dumping some stuff there. You know, I was like, you know, she was like, oh, so the birds. I'm like, yeah, whatever. The birds aren't going to come here. You know, like, well, I'm going to clean that up or it's going to decompose. And of course, you know, people may know this, but then 15 minutes later, all the bread was gone because the birds came and ate all of it, you know? So you so were for wrong me, about yeah, that. I was wrong in a sense. It, was, it kind of revealed yeah. to me something. It was a powerful realization about the nature of cool. reality, nature well, of nature. Well, that, that's what I think yeah. what, what I'm talking about when I say, like, the story we choose to tell ourselves. Yeah. Like, well, I, that's, oh, sorry. You know, I have a similar one where I was coming back from Japan, and I went to the kiosk to print my ticket, mm. and it was like, er, there's an error must talk to. Uh-huh. And I was just like, gosh, and I got really upset because I thought, yeah. and I got scared, and I was just like, oh, my God. And like that, what if I've, you know, I'm kicked off my flight? And I actually started panicking a little bit. And so the story I chose to tell myself was that something was wrong when the only facts that happened was the machine said, go talk to a human. Yeah. Then when I went to go talk to a human, they told me they were bumping me up to business class. Uh, And it was the best ride of my life. Uh, And I think that idea that, you know, you chose to tell yourself that that was just a crazy New Yorker who was doing something. And depending on the type of person you want to be or what you want to experience, you know, you can choose to tell yourself something that's not denying the facts. I still uh, have to go yeah. talk to a person, but I could have just been like, oh, maybe they're bumping me up to first class. And yeah. that would have given me less trauma and stress in that moment. And that was uh, absolutely mm-hmm. my choice. And also, but, how, how uh, du- I just want to quickly say how it duplicates self in all these systems that we've created. Like in the library, we have these uh, uh, SAM and Virtual, which are, you know, very technical systems that created themselves. And um, we then not everyone knows how they work, to be honest. You know, they have their own internal logic. Right. right. And then, you know, you can go call help desk. You can call everyone. And, and, you know, they have familiarity with it. But ultimately, the system operates on its own, you know. Right. And and you yourself investigating and and testing it out and figuring it out. And just like how we can extrapolate from that about life and the universe and and the world. You know, Mm -hmm. people are experts on certain level, but on a certain level, the, the mechanisms are independent of of anyone. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. Go ahead, Lisa. So I was just going to say, you two, for me, this sounds so critical, and I am very critical of myself and everybody else, and my husband in particular. I'm really sorry, <laughs> Phil. But um, the thing is, to you both, to me, uh, gave me examples of ego in both of you, where you, your <laughs> ego tripped yourself up, because yeah. like with you, VJ, like you... You you were like you had your own vision of what this was and you weren't open to the possibilities uh, and the same the same thing with you in a certain way. Like you yeah. were um, you didn't want it to be like your mistake. Yeah. Well, I, I think mine came from the fact that the last flight that I had taken, my flight got canceled and I couldn't get home for three days. So going yeah. off of the last yeah. flying experience right. I had, I was like, oh, this is this is going to be like that because most of the time when we react in those moments, we're we're reacting to what has consistently happened. Well, for you, yeah, yeah. for yeah. you, that yeah. I could see that being and, more influential. Yeah. But VJ's yeah. definitely an egomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I chose are. I chose to make it a revelatory moment for me. And I, did, I know, but see, this is what's so great. Me, yeah. That's what I was going to yeah. say. You know, learn by take responsibility. Yeah. Don't make excuses and learn from your mistakes. Exactly. And that's exactly. what you, you know, and, and it does open you up. Can't go wrong. And can't I will wrong. say this, yeah. it is very natural for humans to develop ego. And it's yeah. super funny yeah. to me. Cause like there was even this point in time 
where I was working because I really was focusing for like two years on dissolving the ego on a daily basis. Yeah. And then I realized that I started to de- develop an ego about not having an ego. Yeah. yeah. And then I started really understanding Eckhart Tolle because I was reading his books and he's like, all you need to do is be like me and have no ego. And I was just <laughs> yeah, like, right. I get you yeah, now. I know, I know about that. <laughs> yeah. But, and no, ego is definitely a tool. It's a powerful tool that can be used. If used correctly, if wielded correctly, I think well, you're yeah. going to be if, if we're going to build ego, we might as well build ego around things that are helpful and useful rather than things that tear us down. Like build yeah. ego yeah, exactly. about being a hard worker you yeah, know, so exactly. that you're always working hard. Build exactly. ego about being yeah. compassionate towards exactly. people rather think, than the, you know, because like I used to have ego about like being smart, which was really just covering up the fact that I was terrified that I was stupid. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, I mean, yeah. I know, and I've had I had a shrink once make fun of me for for a similar thing, and they said, "Who do you think you are to say that? <laughs> Who do you yeah. think you are to say that you're an egomaniac?" Yeah, it's also <laughs> funny because, like, also interesting because, like, uh, one of the theories in leadership or one of the theories in uh, in uh, manifestation and such that I've learned is that in order to rise up, in order to build yourself up, you need to build up all the people around you, build up your circles, and you know, by helping yourself, you help others. And in order to manifest or to create. Uh, the kind of concrete external circumstance that you need. You need to get buy-in from other people. You need to get, you know, you need to build other people, the people that can help you create allies, create the system that will help rise you up and with the intention of, you know, um, startling people, awakening people, getting people to question or think about things or reflect on things so that then they can then make connections in their own life and you're kind of, as a byproduct, you're kind of, you know, like a viral uh, spreading, mm-hmm. spreading that that truth. Well, you know? I I think that can be very negative. Like like Donald Trump, I think does yeah. the same. Does that in a way? It's limited because he's yeah. not good at galvanizing. I mean, he's definitely he's definitely out of people fear. have drank the Kool Aid of Donald Trump, and these people but who it, were previously quote unquote rational have behaved in irrational ways, or what we perceive as irrational mm-hmm. ways, uh, and suddenly just become these like drones for him. Going out there, you know, and it's the most human thing in the world. Like people mistake just because we have developed Mm. a part of the brain that is capable of rational thought does not Mm. mean it's a default mode of the mind. Most of our decisions are unless and this is why I like for meditation is a way of being able to turn on your rational thinking. Yeah. But most people Mm -hmm. make their choices. This is why behavioral economics is a field Mm -hmm. is that we have all Mm -hmm. these economic systems built off of logic, but everyone spends money emotionally 90% of the mm-hmm. time. And yeah. that's why we have like this mm-hmm. student loan crisis. No, you're right. yeah. you're, no, that's a really excellent point. Cause like uh, I had the great good fortune of going to South Africa a few weeks ago and seeing animals. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really struck me is how animals are really all about killing, killing and eating. Mm. And we, you know, we, we are, you know, that's a lot like we think, we're not yeah. like that, but like that's the basis of survival, killing and eating. We definitely have a very reactive mind. The baseline is a very reactive mind. And just like yeah. uh, a lion may sit around staring into space, so to speak, and, and, and you know, yawning and such. We all do the oil gauges kind of self-hypnotic, you know, yeah. just sit listening to things. Kind of, in the subway, I had the experience of just looking at people. They're just like, you know, these blank stares. It's mm-hmm. like, you well, know, they're just completely yeah. tuned out. Well, the way, because you know? the brain is... The way that the brain's developed is actually quite interesting because it hasn't evolved in the way where it's transformed. It's really just three different parts, the lizard brain, the mammal brain, and then the prefrontal cortex. And uh, they're like ice cream scoops on top of each other. Uh, and the reason why it's developed that way is that uh, like when you when you, 
our life gets threatened, right? So if a Mack truck starts mm-hmm. to come towards us, the prefrontal cortex completely shuts down so that we can just react from our mammal brain mm-hmm. and yeah. go into fight right. or flight. Yeah. And so people, if we aren't in a calm space and we don't feel calm enough, like the prefrontal cortex doesn't work. So when you're faced with a huge decision, like maybe who you're going to vote for or someone's using scare tactics, it yeah. actually does shut down the part of your brain that is capable of rational and reasonable thought and you are going into that animal brain and and you get very reactive. And so just by like, once I started studying neuroscience a little bit and I understood that I was realizing, I was like, Oh, like, you know, this is also the core of what resistance to creating art is when a lot of people have artistic blocks. It's that, you know, the, they sit down and maybe the last thing that they did artistically scared them and so their brain thinks it's a threat it shuts down the prefrontal cortex they go into fight flight or freeze which is Mm -hmm. you know beating yourself up in your head getting up and doing Mm -hmm. the dishes instead of creating or just staring at the blank page right and once you really understand that it becomes easier like oh i i need to feel safe right now i need to get my prefrontal cortex back online Uh, so that i can use the higher functioning parts of my mind that that separates me from a cheetah And and that's interesting because that's what I always think is like a professional creative person, people who can create in spite Mm -hmm. of like, Mm -hmm. like in advertising to come up with ads when you're like you, when you're afraid you're going to get fired and you have a deadline to put, be able to put that aside. And a lot of really, you know, professional, like when you have something you have to do, you you can, you, you're a professional, you can put all that fear aside, you own that fear and you just put it in a drawer. Yeah. And well, that's Um, why I I do the meditative writing class, because it's primarily teaching people like when that gets triggered in your brain like what are the techniques cognitive and meditative yeah. techniques to yeah. get that get you back in a place where your brain recognizes that you are safe and it's time to play because you yeah. need you need that feeling of play to create great art whether it is advertising and i, I did marketing for a while so oh, i totally don't i don't, con- I don't consider yeah. that but you do so have to i would like- just say i would just say about the advertising thing it's like similar the way i view or the way i've ultimately seen um you know, the Buddhist teachings about how we're human and where we have the unique opportunity. Uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the Buddhism goes into the idea that, um, you know, we've manifested or we've created, incarnated as a human being. And that's a very unique opportunity. And the way that's kind of selling us like a, like an ad per, advertisement, like an ad man would do, you know, selling us the idea that, uh, you know, right now you're human. We choose to be human. We're, we're human. And, uh, you know, we need to t- leverage our privilege, leverage our opportunity for, for the intention of, you know, startling people, startling other human beings, which is not to say that animals and, 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 and other living beings don't have that, don't have any potential to reach some possibility. <laughs> it's just that right now we're human and we're, we're, we're communicating primarily with humans. So therefore we have to then maximize our opportunities so that then in order to, you know, condition ourselves to understand that, you know, we're, uh, and the both truths may be there that we're both animal and human. But, you know, we need to leverage that human part so then we can reach mm-hmm. the point where we are like awakened or or whatever it is, mm-hmm. enlightened or something like that. And then that's a very it's not something we, we use dismissively. It's something that's, mm-hmm. that's very powerful and recognizing that I'm building on that so that then we can then manifest in the world what we want, what we what we mm-hmm. hope to see. And we engage our ego in a way that what what is it that we want and making awareness of that. So then we're giving the candy, the baby, you know, giving the baby the candy or whatever, give the baby the bottle. <laughs> 
And then, you know, I'm like completely messing that metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, yeah. I was picturing a stripper named Candy being yeah. like, why are you handing me a baby? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be cute. Yeah. So yeah, we're engaging that mindset then. Uh, even like techniques I've used with reading, like I was a long time, I was on a block with reading and then I, I end up playing a, a song in loop uh, in, in the earphones so that then I can like engage that worrying mind, that, that nervous mind. Mm-hmm. With the song and it's playing in loop, so I'm not listening to the song anymore, and then I'm able to read. That's just a yeah. technique that unlocked wow, my that's own. Weird. Yeah. It's just a, a technique that's cool, that, but I'm impressed yeah. that you figured that out. Uh, yeah, somehow I stumbled I across that. I tried using yeah. binaural beats because that helped me a lot for a long time, uh, and it's useful for people just getting those, those bi- or binaural, binaural beats. beats. So yeah. essentially, it's like so. A lot of times when people use music, it's because the music's like getting your there's different wavelengths that your brain operates on that are better for like creative thought versus studying versus focus and a lot of music that's why a lot of classical music is helpful for studying because it's it's getting your brain on those wavelengths yeah so going to binaural beats is just essentially taking the music out of it and it's like these tones that you hear that's so interesting into the background and Uh. when i needed when i first started a lot of my intense research on neuroscience i was like i need to be reading like six hours a day Mm. and i'm dyslexic and i have add so I was like, I, I started using binaural beats and I was just like, and I was focused and in it for hours at a time. That's so inter- no, I, you know what I've been really into lately is mm-hmm. um, rainforest sounds. Oh, nice. And I have that on all the time. Mm-hmm. So I I discovered yeah. that too. Thank you yeah, for pointing it's, it's, that out. It's just getting that brain into that yeah, probably relaxed really state where you're just very calm. Yeah, I would also say the, the way in which I discovered this actually was when uh, I was watching a uh, an episode, this is a memory that kind of tr- perhaps was so late in, in me that helped me discover this. Surgeons listen to music while doing surgery. And at first I was oh, like, yeah. I was like, I, I remember when uh, I watched an episode and a friend of mine was listening, watching it with me. And I go, they failed the surgery, right? And I was like, so I said something stupid like, uh, well, maybe they shouldn't have been listening to music or maybe the music distracted them. And he was like, no, the surgeons actually do that. They play music and it helps them engage yeah. right. in the surgery. I was like, huh, you know, I, you know, I ruminated, I let that sit with me. And perhaps that was the triggering factor that helped me discover this truth about myself. Yeah. Engaging that, you know. Yeah. You know, when I, when I write a lot of my theater work, um, I'll find uh, a song or an album that feels like the world of the piece. Like Mm. my, one of my pieces, it was just, uh, Tom Waits' Rain Dogs was just playing Mm -hmm. on loop for like months for me because it just Mm -hmm. helped me. You know, I like to use music a lot to get into the world of a piece. And it's, you know, I, I think music is one of the most therapeutic forms of art. That yeah. There is. You know, it's I, so funny because um, a lot of my work involves like writing and uh, or painting words and funny things. And um, I really lis- listen to um, Mark Maron, what the fuck, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> listening to an interview with comedians. That's awesome. Uh, and also I would say that, you know, um, ultimately it's interesting to abstractly to listen to all these things and read all these books and all that. But for all of us, we have to kind of drink the tea. We have to experience it. And that's the only way we really have that unlock, you know, that it's, uh, you know, unlock the safe for our mind so that we can reach our full potential. It's one thing just to hear this abstractly or in theory, but then actually practicing and walking the path is is a separate experience. And it's our own own ability to unlock our own potential that is the reward, you know? Well, I think I think you're right. And I think a lot, I mean, that makes so much sense. A lot of it for me, especially lately, is tuning into the work I'm doing mm. and then finding the music, the sound that helps me do that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whatever works for you and whatever unlocks your mind might be unique. And then, but the theories ultimately, you know, can help. 
But as we start to wind down, I want to make a few announcements. Uh, Ready for Clean is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Or you can go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power to listen to previous episodes and sponsor this particular show. Every cent helps you helps us to continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to full extent law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate or readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. Um, also, Ready for Brooklyn um, is, uh, you can listen to us if you're listening to us on the computer, free yourself out by listening to us on your iPhone or Android. So then you can go on the subway and, and listen quietly to our uh, our, our broadcasts. Um, consider downloading our free mobile apps or iPhone or Android at the respective stores. Newsletter, readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Uh, be sure to subscribe to monthly newsletter if you're in the New York City area, especially uh, to find out about new programming, upcoming RFB events, you can sign up at readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Um, lastly, uh, readyforbrooklyn would like you to know about RFB Teen Squad, our six-week after-school program for local teenagers to help learn media literacy, the media making using a hands-on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or donating to this program, uh, please uh, go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash after-school, and then you can find out more. Thank you. Thank you. So any last shots uh, from you guys? Well, if anyone wants to talk neuroscience and art, you can find me at meditativewriting.org. Thank you, Lisa. And I'm going to ask everybody to listen to my show every Thursday, 2 to 3, Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. Or you can go to Radio Free Brooklyn, Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit, and listen to some of my uh, episodes in the archive. I've got over 200 shows now. Thank you. Thank you. I hope people will do that and uh, investigate our sister shows. Please go to reflect.org and, and, and look at shows, current shows and past shows. Definitely encourage people to do that. And we'll be back next Monday. Uh, and this, we're going out with the Bengals, Matic Monday. Ooh, Thank you. Yes.